Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Uh, libertarian throughout modern European history meant socialist and anarchist. It meant the anti I mean, the socialist movement, the workers' movement and the socialist movement. It sort of broke into two branches, roughly. One statist, one anti-statist. Uh, the statist branch led to Bolshevism and uh, Lenin and Trotsky and so on. The anti-statist branch, which included Marxists, left Marxists, uh, Panikov, Rosa Luxemburg, others, uh, to kind of merge more or less into an amalgam with a big strain of anarchism uh, into what was called libertarian socialism. So libertarian in Europe always meant socialist. Here it means ultra, you know, Ayn Rand or mm -hmm. Cato Institute or something like that. But that's a special U.S. usage uh, having to do with the there are a lot of things quite special about the way the United States developed, and this is part of it. Uh, there it meant, and always meant to me, uh, socialist, anti-socialist, uh, anti-state, the anti-state branch of socialism, which meant uh, a, a highly organized society, total, completely organized, nothing with chaos, uh, but uh, based on a democracy all the way through. That means democratic control of communities, of workplaces, of uh, um, uh, federal structures built on systems of voluntary association uh, spreading internationally. I've never heard of Marx uh, or Bakunin or anyone else. Uh, they developed the same ideas. Uh, they thought that they, uh, from their point of view, uh, uh, what they called wage slavery, renting yourself to an owner, was not very different from chattel slavery, uh, or, you know, what they were fighting the civil war about. And you have to recall that by the in the mid nineteenth century, that was a common view in the United States. Mm -hmm. For example, it was a position of the Republican Party. It was Abraham Lincoln's position. It's not an odd view mm -hmm. that there isn't much difference between selling yourself and renting yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea of renting yourself, meaning working for wages, was degrading. Uh, you couldn't. It was just an attack on your personal integrity. Uh, the uh, uh, and they despised the uh, industrial system that was developing, that was destroying their culture, destroying their independence, their individuality, uh, constraining them to be subordinate to masters, uh, losing. There was a tradition of what was called republicanism in the United States. We're free people. First free people in the world. This was destroying and undermining that freedom. This was the core of the labor movement all over, uh, and included in it was the assumption, just taken for granted, that those, I'm quoting, those who work in the mills should run them. In fact, uh, one of their main slogans, I'll just quote it, was uh, uh, they condemned what they called the new spirit of the age, uh, gain wealth, forgetting all but self. Okay. That idea that yeah. you should, the new spirit, that you should only be interested in gaining wealth and forgetting about your relations to other people, they regard it as just a, a violation of fundamental human nature and a degrading idea. So back by pop 
popular demand, I have John Graziano with me today in the studio, and we're going to have an episode discussing what socialism is. And sort of what prompted this was uh, two weeks ago, I was quote tweeted by Candace Owens, and um, I was surprised at some of the stuff that was said on both sides of the aisle. It just seemed to me that people were a little bit confused about what socialism is, um, what socialist institution- institutions are. And what have you, um, I had responded to some guy that had basically made a joke or a crack about, uh, you know, not not thinking that anything in the United States was a socialist institution. And I said, well, if you feel that way, you should probably stay off our paved roads, not call the fire department, not call the police department. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's what she had quote tweeted and said, turned it into something about flat screen TVs. She said you were impressively stupid. Yeah. <laughs> There's that, too. <laughs> Which, of course, Candace would be the acknowledged expert on being impressive. Right? It's like a warning label. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit first about, you know, the word has been so weaponized in, in American politics. Socialism is a very weaponized word. I was thinking about this earlier. Is there a more weaponized word in no. Politics, or do you think there is? I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe patriotism. I don't know, but maybe. But socialism, national security. I mean, it's pretty up there. Yeah, socialism is pretty far up there. So you know, originally, um, if you look at FDR's policy, Roosevelt's policies Mm -hmm. were very much social democracy. That is absolutely what he was trying to institute in the country, and and he knew that, and his staff knew that, but they chose not to use this word because they realized that they wouldn't be able to be um, successful or that it would be turned against them, et cetera, et cetera. So he started using the word, word liberal. Like he calls his, he called his policies liberal in contrast to uh, the conservative policies. A few timid people who fear progress will try to give you new and strange names for what we are doing. Sometimes they will call it fascism and sometimes communism and sometimes regimentation, and sometimes socialism. But in so doing, they are trying to make very complex and theoretical something that is really very simple and very practical. If you look at what liberalism actually is, it isn't this big government egalitarian thing. What it is is laissez-faire economics. It's a smaller government. It's very much what the Hubert... Herbert Hoover, for some reason I can't see his name, <laughs> uh, policies were you can at call the time. Him Hubert Herbert. Or just, I don't know, butthurt or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, the, the word was, the, the word liberal um, up to that point had always meant um, kind of these classic liberals like John Locke and John Stuart Mill right. who, who believed in individual liberty. Who right. believed in uh, laissez-faire capitalism, uh, and and somehow uh, under FDR that got turned into sort of the more socially focused liberal that um, we think of as you know up to say the 1980s. Um, I would say even now, I think I think um, I think the decision that FDR made in that time actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Because the word socialism was so weaponized. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the unintended consequences of that are even now, to this day, we see U.S. politics in terms of this binary thing Mm -hmm. where you have liberal as the leftist and conservative as the rightist. And really, the way liberals in this country define themselves, it's not what liberalism is. If you are, if you leave the United States and you are, you're talking about international relations or even academic Mm -hmm. circles, they're going to use this idea, liberalism, meaning 
a smaller government with laissez-faire economics. That's just mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah. So, but regardless, here we are. This is where this is the situation we're at now, and right. it continues to be weaponized. I think it was almost re-weaponized a bit under the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, which is unfortunate. So I've sort of been, well, you know, let me say this. It was, but it was also an, an awakening experience due to the way millennia, millennials perceive the word. I don't think they have the same sort of um, angst about socialism mm-hmm. that older generations do. They weren't propagandized in the same way against socialism as older ge- generations were. So... And, I, and the- Social security, which all of you know, transformed life for senior citizens in this country, was defined by his opponents as socialist. The concept of the minimum wage, that workers had to be paid at least a certain amount of money for their labor, was seen as a radical intrusion into the marketplace and was described as socialist. Unemployment insurance, when you lose your job, you have something to fall back upon. Abolishing child labor, ending the fact that children of eight, 10, 12 years of age were working in factories or working in the fields. The 40 hour work week, collective bargaining, the rights of workers to engage in negotiations with a union, strong banking regulations, deposit insurance, and job programs that put millions of people to work were all described in one way or another as socialist. Yet, as you all know, all of these programs and many more have become the fabric of our nation and, in fact, the foundation of our middle class. And, and the other thing is, and that's why I was saying like up to say 1980 with the word liberal, is that liberal had, and people calling themselves liberals, uh, especially in the Democratic Party, have sort of slipped back into the classic liberal mold. Yeah, that's, uh, the, because that's the now, irony. <laughs> now it's the Democrats yeah. who want smaller government. They're the yeah. ones deregulating the banks. They're the that's ones right. deregulating telecom. It's the Republicans, the conservatives who want bigger government they want government in your house they want government uh telling you who you can love they want government telling you when you can have babies telling you what kind of drugs you can you can ingest of course they won't admit that but they won't admit and of course a lot of democrats go right along with them including you know the the giant surveillance state which is supported by both parties which which can't be in, in any stretch classified as liberal indeed that's, yeah, I think that's the basis of all neoist, and I say neoist because neoliberal, neoconservative is more or less the same. Mm-hmm. That's the basis right there. Right. Um, so, you know, if you even look at the basic definition of what socialist is, just nothing more. It's, it's uh, defined as various theories, systems, or institutions of social organization in which the means of production distribution is owned collectively. So I think the important part of that definition to understand is that's, Collectively owned doesn't have to necessarily mean by the state either. There are the status forms of socialism, and we're mm-hmm. going to get into that in a minute. That would be the Marxist-Lenin versions. But there are other versions. Anarcho-socialism is where the democracy collectively owns whatever the means and um, distribution, whatever the yes, public goods are. exactly. And then um, social democracies, a la Sweden, for example, right. combine elements of a mixed economy mm-hmm. 
with. And, and you and I can have this discussion, which we've had we've had offline, which is that it, it's not socialism, but actually capitalism, that is really dependent on a powerful state yeah. to preserve the structures of capitalism. Yes, and I think because the biggest the biggest confusion comes from this idea that capitalism is a free market, and it's really not. Um, mm-hmm. There are no such things as free markets, and mm-hmm. we can get back into the Adam Smith's writing, and we've talked about this. If you've only if you know only the Invisible Hand from Adam Smith, mm-hmm. that's all you know of Adam Smith. You really don't know much of what Adam Smith discusses, mm-hmm. because Adam Smith def- defines um, wealth not in terms of gold, silver, but in terms of labor. So he, you know, it's a uh, division of labor is a consistent theme in, in the wealth of nations. But if, if you don't read the book deeply or past the second chapter, you don't realize how much he hates the division of labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he talks about division of labor, he's talking about the division of class. Correct. The same way that Marx is talking about the division. Of yes. Class. Yes. And he's, and another misconstrued thing about Smith is that he's the father of capitalism. We've heard him call this by the libertarians mm-hmm. out there. And that's just a completely false statement. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Smith was an Enlightenment period writer. Capitalism is a 19th century concept. So they right. were not, Adam Smith was writing prior to capitalism being any sort of idea. So um, the other thing that I want to add is the, the concept of a free market, whether it's conceptual or whether it's as close as we can get in reality, is not exclusive to capitalism. You no, can it's not. have free market socialism. All yeah. that means is that the workers are owning their own company. Right. We have a democratized workplace, and and maybe you have two shoe companies who are democratized, and the, those They're workers still are, competing, are yeah. competing Absolutely. to produce the best shoe. That's right. That's right. No, yeah. So, and you know, and, and the reality is that most, quote unquote, I'm using my scare quotes right now, mm-hmm. most capitalist markets are not free. There's no such thing as a free market. All markets are rigged. So the question mm-hmm. becomes, who are they rigged for? And in modern day capitalist, scare quotes mm-hmm. again, in the United States, they're completely rigged towards the plutonomy. They're right. rigged towards the 1%. They're rigged towards corporations. You and I do not have the same access to tax codes and other things like carried interest that mm-hmm. these folks do. Exactly. It is absolutely not equal. There's no equality of opportunity here. So we need to just realize that as a voting population and best figure out how we can deal with that. So we should, before we go on, yeah. is just talk about that word you which, which is one? plutonomy. Oh, pl- <laughs> I use that word a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's not a common way to talk about it. So where did you get that from? No, and it's a word I use intentionally because I want folks to look it up. I'm going to bring you a vision of what it looks like to the 1%. And I'm not going to put words in their mouths. I'm going to quote their words in context extensively to show you what they think about us. This is the view from the 1% in what should be one of the most infamous memoranda in the world, a Citicorp 2005 document. Now, this went to their private wealth group, the private banking group. And to get private banking, basically you have to have an income or wealth of a million dollars. Right. So this is the elite of the elite that this goes through. And you have to envision the jolly tone of all this. In early September, we introduced the idea that the U.S. is a plutonomy, a concept that generated great interest from our clients. What's a plutonomy? A plutonomy is when you have rule 
by the wealthy and where the wealth of the nation is immensely disproportionately goes to a very small group. Citigroup's wealthy clients were thrilled to hear that the U.S. was ascending to this exalted state. This is where their definition of a plutonomy, where economic growth is powered by and largely consumed by the wealthy few. Six years ago now, there was a memo that was leaked, and it was basically the banksters talking about how asleep most of the country was mm -hmm. and how they could continue to extract wealth from the middle classes, et cetera, and there would be nobody left to stop them. Mm -hmm. But they should worry about the day that Americans became woke, so to speak, mm -hmm because there are more of those than there are of them. Right. And, and it actually produces a, a, a good point about the free markets, is that, in fact, the more capitalist the market is, in other words, the more work, the more wealth is extracted from the workers yeah. and handed up to the elites, to a, to a tiny minority of elites, the more rigging you need in the market to keep those workers from turning on the elites. Absolutely. You know, here's the, here's the other part of that conversation. For for a very long time, the plutonomy had to worry about worker pay because they wanted to sell more widgets. Yes. And they wanted to make sure that their workers had enough money, expendable income, to buy widgets. But that changed with globalization because mm -hmm. it was no longer about selling widgets locally. We now had all of these markets opened up globally right. with which they could... Um, you know, go in and sell things. So it became less of an issue for them. So it didn't matter if wages didn't keep pace with production or mm -hmm. inflation. It just didn't matter. But now I, I would say the roosters are coming home to roost a little bit because the disease that we have in the United States, this uh, failed neoliberal policy, so to speak, is spread everywhere. It's not yes. just here that people are suffering. They're suffering the world over. We're seeing this 1% global wealth extraction happening just about everywhere. So, and I'll also point out because you just maybe watched the Oliver Stone Untold History series. It was a great, uh, which is great. Everybody should watch. Everybody it. should watch this. Um, but, but I do think I was struck by that, uh, by the sea change that happened after nine eleven, and especially with the with the uh, authorization to go to war in Iraq, mm -hmm. which the U.S. suddenly asserted itself no longer as. The global policeman, no long, which was flawed in general, no right. longer as you know the 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 people who are going to come in and save Europe, which is a somewhat apocryphal treatment of the of the first of the Second World War. Right. We just stopped pretending that we cared about international law, that we cared about mm -hmm. uh, globalism. We were all about extracting as much wealth from nations using our military power as we can, and what we're also seeing is that same attitude being turned on you know 90% of the citizenry who don't have access to um, as many individual resources uh, and they're they're just looking to extract as much wealth as they possibly can from us that's correct yeah no and i mean that's been i would say that's been going on since since truman's been in office he gave up the the um, fdr policies in exchange for what some more neo-McCarthyist ideas against Russia. I mean, we can get that. Well, we, we could digress but, into a whole Harry other conversation. Truman is but. a democratic hero, isn't Harry he? Truman is not my democratic hero, <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, you know, totally had to drop those bombs. And I, I, right, and, <laughs> and I, and I'm going to digress again for a second because I think to myself how different 
our world would look like if Henry Wallace had retained the VP position instead of being thwarted by the the uh, Democratic establishment. You know what happened at that DNC convention was very similar with what ha- we saw with Bernie Sanders. They yeah. really are threatened by progressives. Bernie's not the first one that's done this. Henry Wallace. It was a mm-hmm. repeat. He he won that first vote. But yeah. they wouldn't let it stand. Well, the question is what really Truman was a corporate puppet. I because mean, Wallace was to the left of FDR. That's right. And FDR was left enough that they tried to overthrow him. Bush's that's grandpa right. tried to overthrow FDR. That's right. And it's and I think it's important to mention that Henry, Henry Wallace wanted to extend the New Deal to African Americans. Mm-hmm. That was a big part of what he was pushing for. Right. So no doubt that was threatening to these folks as well. And FDR explicitly... Uh, did not extend the New Deal to uh, African Americans and, in fact, purposely right. excluded uh, the New Deal reforms in, in areas of, of the workforce that were predominantly held by African Americans. That's correct. He, he made those uh, deals to, like get, domestic to get it help passed. And, and it's unfortunate, yes. yeah. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about, um, just as an overarching conversation, uh, let's talk about what agents look like in a socialist society versus what they would look like in uh, a realist version of the world or Mm -hmm. some of the other forms. Uh, Agents in a socialist society are viewed as more altruistic and as a product of the environment, not innately selfish. And this is a really important difference because in almost every other versions of political economy or international relations, Agents are viewed as uh, as agents as selfish. They're self-serving. Mm-hmm. So that's the first difference. And the fact that they're a product of the environment is why the environment is so much more important. Uh, so while individual rights and freedoms do, do matter, they are valued in a socialist society, the highest value is placed on the good of the whole, not the individual. So the main goal of this is, is uh, political and social equality. So... I, I'm going to divide the types of socialism up into three categories. I realize that there are philosophers out there that might have a different viewpoint or do different sort of um, buckets, but these are my buckets. I'm saying the first is the Lenin-Marxist version. Mm-hmm. The second is the anarcho-socialism, which is where the democracy itself, is, the state is not involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third would be the social democracies a la Sweden. So uh, let's first talk about Marxist-Lenin. So Marxist-Lenin, it, it, this theory, um, this, it is a status theory. And, it's this, and for Marx, the, it's the stage between capitalism and communism. And sort of the pure state of communism. That's correct. So he has three underlying assumptions or foundations that are needed to bring about equality in his version of, mm-hmm. of socialism. The first is that the existing socio, socioeconomic order will resist, meaning the capitalists are going to resist the change um, by any means necessary, hence it requires a violent overthrow. So mm-hmm. he posits that in order for us to achieve this, this beautiful, perfect state that he wants, there has to be a violent overthrow right. of the capitalists. So in order to achieve, uh, achieve the, the change, a strong, powerful government is, has to be set up. So mm-hmm. this is a strong, centralized government, almost a, a dictatorship in a way. I right. mean, we, this is a fair word to use. And that government is tasked with restructuring the economy. Mm -hmm. So once this is achieved, the powerful government is replaced with a decentralized citizen-run political administration. So so that's sort of the stages that it breaks down into. Yeah, and that's actually, you know, in a lot of ways what people think of when they think of the failure of socialism and or communism and how it failed. What it really was was the failure of Marx's idea 
for how this should come about and Lenin's execution of how this should come about in that it required violence and it required um, a, a, a large authoritarian state right. to, to carry it out. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is, as we get to anarcho-socialism or anarcho-communism, uh, we'll see it was still, um, I, I believe, now I don't have a ton of stuff to back this up, but I think there was still this lingering misconception that humans are innately uh, sort of driven to compete with one another. And that if you were going to keep people, if you're going to enforce altruism, you needed to have a very, a very strong state behind it to to keep that philosophy in, intact. And we've seen. You just see me doing my philosopher thinking she's face doing her right now. Philosopher thinking. <laughs> so, so go ahead. What do you What do you think of that? Um, I need to think on that a little bit. I would say that that's probably true. Although, um, outs outside of this discussion we're having, I do argue because I'm a moral naturalist. I do mm-hmm. argue that um, the default position of human beings is altruism, not selfishness. Yes, you Although, and I agree on that. Right. So this is probably a conversation for another day. Right. Um. But it also feeds into the the state enforced version of socialism. Yeah. And the and the criticism of socialism, which I think is has been very effective, which is not true, but the assertion that you need an authoritarian state Correct. to have a purely yeah. socialist economy. And, yeah. and it's, that is... It's what that... Uh, somebody sent me that meme the other day that still had me laughing. The absurdo deducto Venezuela argument. Oh, arg- <laughs> argument absurdo at Venezuela. Whatever. The, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, yeah, very. it was a very funny um, tweet. I'm still laughing at that. Yeah, you know, this assumption that all socialist regimes are totalitarian is, is a very mistaken. And it's... And it's very mistaken. It's not only mistaken, it's it's an insidious reversal of reality. Yeah, I agree. Because in capitalism, unchecked capitalism, and Adam Smith got this right, you will have an ever-increasing disparity of wealth. Mm-hmm. And ever-increasing disparities of wealth are pretty much why we have wars pretty much why you have internal strife. Uh, And if you want to keep the proletariat or the working class from overrunning the tiny minorities with their mansions on the hill who are starving their children to death, you need to have a fairly powerful police state to prevent that from happening. Yeah, you know, I can't really argue that. Um, You know, Adam, speaking of Adam Smith, uh, you know, he made a strong argument against uh, what he would refer to as state-sponsored monopolies a la the East India Company. Yes. You know, and his, to me, the modern version of that is very much what we see as far as uh, regulatory capture in our government. Mm -hmm. Because the the connection between the state and the Mm -hmm. corporate oligarchy is very much married at this point. And the state is protecting this... Well, this our entire financial our system is, in yeah. effect, a state-sponsored monopoly with the Federal Reserve. Right. Uh, and then we are we are simply having state-enforced monopolies, uh, as you see, who's buying Time Warner this week and who's buying Fox, and we're having all of these these merges that limit competition and limit choice, which is supposed right. to be the foundation of of capitalism. Uh, because the state is allowing it to happen. It's not only allowing it to happen, it's encouraging it to happen. So you can look at our airline industry, you can look at the telecom industry, you can right. look at our media, right. all as state-sponsored monopolies. Yeah, the privatization has certainly led to that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the butcher, the baker, the brewer, <laughs> this class uh-huh. of Adam Smith, yeah. 
uh, might be motivated by self-interest when providing you with dinner, but the same butcher, baker, or brewer jumps in to save you from, into a lake to save you from drowning. They're motivated by benevolence. He was one of the first writers to not to actually come out and say, "No, we're not always self-serving." Meaning that mm-hmm. there's, he believed that human beings at the end of the day has some form of solidarity. And I should mm-hmm. mention right now that that Adam Smith could be considered what we would call a socialist libertarian. So he argued a bit for a case of socialism in his day as well. Yes, but I mean, but the other thing that we have now is the butcher is Harris Farms, the baker is General Mills. And right, yeah. What was the last dude? The brewer. Oh, the brewer is Anheuser-Busch. Has a bush. Right? <laughs> so... So we don't have. Yeah, a I don't lot think of any of those folks are jumping in the lake to save you if you drown. Yes. Yeah. So, so what we've seen is these these monopolies, uh, these corporate monopolies, just just growing and growing unchecked because we've never enforced any trust laws since Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Okay. So well, let's talk about that because I wouldn't consider those specific companies to be monopolies, but I do think we do we do see some state sponsored monopolies. I would say the media corporations, what we're down to six large media corporations now that mm-hmm. pretty much own every. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not just talking about television. We're talking about newspaper, local broadcasting, all of it. Yeah. yeah I'd yeah. say that would qualify. Um, I'm a little bit struck by the recent um, decision against the DOJ on the uh, merger of. Uh, Time Warner. Right. Uh, this to me is like. Right, but I look at monopolies um, by their actions. I mean, you can have a straight up monopoly where there's simply one company providing a service, but you can also have companies that are big enough to engage in monopolistic practices. Like Anheuser Busch okay. is a great example. You know, Sacramento. One of the things in Sacramento that I really like is they've got a lot of these nice brew pubs where they make their own beer and yeah. small businesses. Well, guess what? In one of the most prime real estate locations in in Sacramento, this new high-tech, beautiful brew pub opened up pretending to be some mom-and-pop business. Turns out it was run by Anheuser-Busch. This is, this is a large company using their economic resources to out-compete actually better businesses simply because they have more resources to access. Oh, yeah. I don't disagree with that. And mm-hmm. a lot of times they do jump into these. They they have a large company set up a separate LLC to make them look like they're a smaller. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the whole LLC scam is something we could do. Yeah, another whole, exactly. Um, definitely on that. Uh, so let's move on now and then talk a little bit about anarcho-socialism. Right. Which is... A lot of people will argue uh, that that is uh, a, a more pure form of socialism than than Marx. Um, I like it because I think if you can make the argument that socialists make that concentrated wealth in the private sector mm-hmm. is is dangerous, and I think you can make that case very clearly. You can turn those same arguments around and saying concentrated power in the hands of the state is dangerous. And we, we know that. We've seen what can happen. Look, you don't need to convince yes. me. I agree with you. I, um, and, I, and I might get pushed back for saying this, but I definitely side towards the anarcho side. I don't know that. Um, right. I have a lot of re- love and respect for Marx. I think he was a beautiful writer. He's a beautiful philosopher, quite mm-hmm. intelligent. And I think his critiques and criticisms of political economies are very spot on i just don't think his solution yeah it hinges on this altruistic behavior a little bit too much for me because i do think um what you're saying now is valid we have seen a command economy can be as deadly as Mm. a capitalist one can be 
We know this empirically. We, yeah, we know this. Um, um, about people who might be frightened by the anarcho part of that, because that's yeah. a little more <laughs> radical. And, you know, anarchism has long been used as a synonym for just Well, hang chaos. on. What? That is another word that has been deeply weaponized. I, yeah, I, I find it hard to see it as weaponized because so many people are just completely ignorant about what it means. I think with socialism... A lot of the people attacking it know exactly what it means. They understand it very well, and, and it's exactly why they're scared of it. I think the difference with anarchism is I think most people do not understand what it means. It doesn't mean, you know, running around, uh, throwing bombs and burning down buildings. Yeah. Uh, and it also does, it also, only in a very narrow extent does it mean what we would think of as the logical conclusion of American libertarianism or objectivism, where you know everyone's home is a fortress and we're protecting it with a bunch of right, weaponry. Right, right. Uh, that is individual anarchism. And that's uh, a field of thought that pretty much has been completely debunked. There's no way you can achieve individual anarchism without everybody just starving to death. Uh, and so what anarchism is really talking about, and at its core, um, as a core, socialism is the workers owning the means of production. The, the core of anarchism is inherent suspicion of any concentration of power mm-hmm. and attempts to democratize away concentrations of power. I agree. So in 1902, there was a book published by a lesser known Russian revolutionary called Mutual Aid. Yes. And that was a... That was, um, both a political document and a scientific treatise on the natural state of of evolution, the natural state of certain groups of Name animals. Name that philosopher. That philosopher is Kropotkin. Yes. <laughs> this is not a Polish dumpling. No. Uh, and and I mean I don't want to I don't want to stress this. Nor was he a bearded bomb thrower. <laughs> he was bearded though. He's super bearded. Right. He's, Might Russian, have been super he's a Russian bearded. philosopher. I could say half. But is, is the stereotype of an anarchist is just doesn't hold. Yeah, I mean, he was actually uh, Kropotkin was actually like come, came from a very wealthy landowning family. That's right. Uh, and then ended up doing time for a lot of his political activities. So he was sort of he was sort of rejecting this. Um, but a, a good metaphor to think about is if Marx was Newton, mm-hmm. Kropotkin was Einstein. Mm, yeah, and, and maybe he's not on the same intellectual level as Einstein or whatever. But what he did was he took Marx, which I think had some flaws in his theory, especially right. with regard to the state, and he moved it. He moved it forward. Uh, and his position is that um, socialism has to be a, a libertarian or anarchic form of government. That's how it's best realized right and And hang on let me stop you there because again we have a problem with word definitions right americans do not use the word libertarian in the same way that somebody in philosophy or international relations would so Uh, right i I don't i don't want people to to listen to this and think you're 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 uh, saying libertarian in the way that you know american libertarian we're not this is i am rand rand paul yes when i'm talking about libertarians (laughs) i don't mean intellectual poser right. uh, trust funded that, fancy lads or that it's who think they Thomas can make Hobbes it on their is a own. god or Anne Rand is a god that's yes. not what it's about yeah. yeah exactly and in fact the first libertarian the first person to call himself a libertarian in print um, was Joseph de Jacques 
who was also regarded as one of the first anarcho-communists. Mm-hmm. So libertarianism, in its in its real sense, the sort of the origin of the word, and uh, socialism are very tightly combined in a lot of political philosophy. Right. So I think the thrust of mutual aid that needs to be the the underlying premise that, that we should discuss is that he believed that the chief criterion for evolutionary success was altruism. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this idea, which is hence the mutual aid. It wasn't this idea that we were self-serving agents. Um, and, you know, at that particular time, that again, like when Adam Smith was making similar steps in that direction, it really wasn't accepted. Um, so, but his, it was an important part of how you brought about a, a moral order of world peace. So his philosophy isn't just a political economy. It's also, you're right, there's a little bit of science thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, his, I mean, the, the, the book uh, Mutual Aid, and I forget what the subtitle is right now. Um, I could probably look at it. Uh, but the, the, the book is actually also treated as the start of uh, altruistic evolution and the look at collaboration's role in natural selection. Uh, right. He's the guy who really because picked that off. He is, because he talks about Darwin in this book, not to mm-hmm. digress into um, a whole other subject. But. Right. But he did have a very, uh, and in fact, Stephen Jay Gould, many uh, many of you will know Stephen Jay Gould from The Mismeasure of Man, mm-hmm. has defended him on this particular premise. So, yes. Just to give you an idea. But, but the most important thing about that, that book and about his philosophy is it just takes a fire axe to the whole idea that mm-hmm. humans are best when they're competing with each other. Right. Uh, I, I think that... Yeah, the, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, and, and you can show that in science. The only, you, the only people who are really pushing the uh, humans are best competing with each other, I find it suspicious that it's always the people who have already won the competition, usually at right. birth. Right. Man, I think that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So the other ma- major variation of socialist society is the democratic socialism. Um, and this is a, vari- a variant that treats egalitarianism also as its primary goal, but it assumes that the changes can be affected by a government that comes to power by democratic means. So yeah. we've now gotten rid of this idea that you have to have a violent overthrow of mm-hmm. the capitalists. Um, it does it does bring in this concept of a mixed economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is some free market involved. But it also balances out the problems of the free market with very strong social institutions that pick up the pieces, so to speak. Right. So this is more of a, a hybrid economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you talk about democratic socialism, there there really isn't um a purely democratic socialist country where all the workers own all the means of production there are mixed economies where They're you mixed have economies, yeah. where you still have capitalism you still have uh you, you still have wealthy people taking profit they're just not as disgustingly wealthy as we've seen in the past couple of decades no and they have progressive tax codes as well and they, they have progressive tax codes so what Sorry. you're having what you're having if you think about a bell curve you've all seen the bell curve um and you start sort of uh, in the very simplistic thing in, in a system that's as complex and chaotic as uh, the global economy. Mm-hmm. You are going to have people that simply through no doing of their own mm-hmm. end up on one end of the bell curve, George W. Bush, or another <laughs> end of the bell curve, uh, everybody were bombing, right? Yeah. Uh, and the whole idea behind democratic socialism is you bring those ends in, okay? Mm-hmm. You have... You have mechanisms in place 
to make the capitalist parts of society less damaging. Right. Which I also think is a huge indictment of capitalism because it turns out you don't need a lot of cap you don't need a lot of mechanisms in place to make the the socialist parts of society less right. damaging. Those tend to work pretty well. Right. So this is basically a social market system in yeah. which the government does control some economic resources, not all, mm-hmm. and it also embodies um strong regulation of the ones right. that it doesn't. So right. But I think the most important thing, important, important thing to take away from this is this mm-hmm. is a government that has mandate from the electorate. It's it's democratically elected, mm-hmm. which is the defer, the big difference between that and a, a Marxist sort of system. And a Marxist system, but it still works very well with. Uh, I think it works better. It works very well with anarcho-socialism, anarcho-communism. Oh, fair. Okay. Um, there's no reason why, as we said before, why an anarcho-communist system can't have free markets. Right. They just have free markets where the workers are producing and owning the means of production mm-hmm. and they're competing amongst themselves to produce better and more innovative products. I, I um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I could not have said that better myself. So, you know, that brings me to uh, the point I'm at. I, I'm, I've seen a lot of folks try to make the argument that social democracies aren't socialists, and they are. There's there's the big bucket philosophy of socialism, and inside the big bucket, we can do a Venn diagram. Yeah. These are the various um, things that, that come out of that. You know, and, and I would argue that the ideal society is some, lies somewhere between anarcho and social democracies, I think. And I would argue that the more anarcho you get, the better our society is going to be. And now we're going to turn this into a he said, she said. Because ah. <laughs> I'm... I mean, maybe it's because I'm Swedish. I'm tending more towards the social market systems. Um, yeah, well... what is Okay, so what is your reasoning for that? Okay, so first off, I'm not ever going to argue that um, a Swedish system in the United States would not be a gigantic improvement over Swedish, what we have. Okay? We Swedish. could get the Swedish system. We could get social democracy. And I think we would see a lot more people uh, be, be happy. Oh, absolutely. Um, where we get into the anarcho part is that you have to have an inherent suspicion and depending on how committed you are to it, an effort to break up concentrations of power. So some of the other things that you would go to take it further than say the Swedish system Mm -hmm. is full democratization of the workplace. So you you have no more, you you have to say something about it? I do. Okay. She said. <laughs> um, I don't disagree with that. I, I, I'm a big believer in worker co-ops. I think they work, they, I think they're a great They've juxtap- been shown to work better. Correct. I think they're a great juxtaposition to a multinational corporation for a lot of people. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't think everything has to be a worker co-op. That's all I'm saying. I don't know. You know, maybe, um, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't see it as, as, as a tenable position to, to, to think that that we could one day achieve that, and I don't mean to sound like a Clinton right Clintonite right now right. with my naysaying. <laughs> no, but you know nobody's talking about imposing this, I- imposing this uh, okay. like through some what some giant state. Yeah, are right? you going Lenin Marxist on me? No, I'm what? not going Lenin Marxist. What I'm talking <laughs> I'm about is is the more democracy we can work into our institutions the better off we're going to be. I and I think that. first I we democratize the workplaces, and then we can think about democratizing our democracy. Right. So um, I guess my worry from a philosophical point of view, my worry here is that in your attempt to do that, we don't have the means of dealing with the free riders, those that 
you know, want to take advantage. There's always going to be a percentage of the population mm-hmm. that isn't going to be on board. And, sure. you know, you see these guys that say, well, I have my own. I don't want to pay taxes for somebody else. I don't want to pay into a, a collective system of anything. They don't even want to pay into what we have already existing sure. in the country. Sure. So my worry there is if you don't have some sort of a... I think we, this is why we need the balance. If you don't have some sort of a, a, a stronger regulated government system mm-hmm. to deal with those folks, you end up with a lot of free riders or, I mean, you know, does this make sense? Yes, except, and I will, I'll make the argument uh, that the reason those people think that way mm-hmm. is because of our strong statist educational system, because of our strong state-run media that tells you that selfishness is okay, that tells you that... Um, if you make $40,000 a year, you need to go online and argue against the inheritance tax. Uh, there's there's an engineered part of, of what you're saying. Those people don't just exist in a vacuum. No, but I would, I would argue, okay, here's the she said. I would mm-hmm. argue that that's not a product of our strong status education system. I would say it's a lack of it. I think we don't have uniform... Um, uniform levels of education throughout the country this and is true but if I, we did i'd like to i would like to see like i i'm tired of like you know states like kansas thinking that oh we don't have to teach evolution we're going to teach creation instead you, did, does that make sense i would like to see a stronger centralized uh uniform level of education in this country because we're our kids are you're right now i mean the critical reasoning skills are, mm-hmm. are sorely lacking across the board yes and the whole idea of the religious the effect of the fanatical religious on on this system is something yeah. else that 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 we can discuss um maybe in another show but, <laughs> uh what i'm talking about is i went to um a a fairly middle class uh high school Okay. We did not talk about communism. We did not talk about socialism. We talked about how great America was. Really? Uh, yeah. I went to a state school. Wait, what state did you grow up in? Tell in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to a school outside of Madison, Middleton, Wisconsin. And we there there, there was in no way, uh, even though most of the kids at school were expected to be college bound, uh, there was not a discussion of other economic systems. Right. As, and even in college... Uh, at UW-Madison, there, the discussion of Marx was about why Marx was wrong. I mean, we didn't have a lot of Marxist professors, even at UW-Madison, teaching in the economic department. Okay, so to play Desville's advocate, yeah. I think that is horrible and wrong. I, mm-hmm. I'm agreeing with you that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to disagree as the reasons, fundamental reasons underlying that. I'm saying it's because we don't have uniform federal levels of education because I did not have that same experience. I grew up in California. Um, now, granted, I'm one of those privileged brats that went sure. to private college prep school. So I need to disclose that because I have mm-hmm. no doubt that the curriculum that I was given mm-hmm. was definitely above and par for so, so you're saying i'm talking to a member of the ruling elite here yeah, yeah well, well at least i own it <laughs> <laughs> you own lots of things you're um, the ruling elite oh <laughs> oh snap, oh, snap. <laughs> um but uh, you know even at uc irvine i, I went to uc irvine for my undergrad uh-huh. um cal Staley for my master's degree mm-hmm. i you know i learned about lenin marxism and it was never presented to me as anything other than what these are the facts this is what his philosophy mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. and you know you can talk about the good parts and the bad parts which we would do in lab yeah 
So, you know, maybe my thing is this. If we could bring all of the all of the school system mm-hmm. in the country up to the same level as a UC Irvine, mm-hmm. that would be more beneficial for the population. And I think the only way you do that is is not leaving that in the hands of each state. Right. And now I'm so I'm going to said. be he said <laughs> I I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to put on my anarcho hat okay. and point out that we have that we have that in a lot of in a lot of areas of our of our society. We have universal communication regulations run by Ajit Pai. Yeah, don't you? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm have, not saying it can't. The go education wrong. department was run by Arnie Duncan. You think he's gonna he's gonna let people treat like teach like like those unpatriotic things. Yes, about the United because States? so much of it is still left in the state's hands. No matter if we, whether we have federal funding or there's never been a level, a consistent level mm-hmm. at the federal where we've brought up the level of education for everybody. And, and it, look, I'm not defending. California has a lot of misses. We have mm-hmm. areas where the schools are sorely lacking, and our, mm-hmm. and we we have uh, you know denser populations, less money. Right. So, you know, I'm not saying California is getting it right by any means. And we've also d- deeply defunded the UC system. Mm-hmm. The state's down to paying and, around and 10%. And that's actually one so, area where um, a federal equalization of school funding right. so is each, incredibly each, necessary. I believe each student should get the same exact amount of money no matter where they go to school. Right. And it's inherently unfair when you base your system on property taxes, mm-hmm. because if you have an area that has very expensive housing, they generally have fewer kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and the areas where you have poverty, you mm-hmm. have a denser population. So you're automatically, right off the bat, you're automatically um, keeping these kids in an unprivileged environment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, this, this, I don't think that's up for debate. Um, and we also go through how, I, I mean, for me, it's it's very problematic to charge people property taxes on their primary residence, which we talked about last podcast. He said, she said. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, So yeah, you are, okay. you are, you are more in favor of say a larger state government or a larger, um, federal government. Yeah. That's enforcing uniform standards. Yeah. Now granted, I, no, I understand that. I understand your point that you could end up with some dumbass controlling the situation, but that's true of anything. Mm-hmm. But quite frankly, we've lived through, I mean, you go into some of the other states, Kansas, Alabama, I can go through the, the, the poor states, and the, these mm-hmm. kids absolutely in no way, shape, or form have equality of education. Exactly. They yeah. really don't. And that's intentional. It's intentional. I agree. And it's, it's, um, it's, not, it's harming us as a society because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, I can, could sort of reference the part where Plato gets right on a lot of ways. A more educated population makes a better choice when they vote because mm-hmm. they are more informed on, on the situation. If they have critical reasoning skills, they're able to see through any uh, sort of Haspara propaganda stuff. Mm-hmm. And they can make a more informed decision, but we're not giving folks the opportunity to, to be on that level of the playing field. Exactly. And, of course... My read of it is that the people running things are very happy with the level of education. No, I agree, country. which is why they keep weaponizing socialism. So, mm-hmm. but I, okay, so here, here's my, um, my um, optimism for the mm-hmm. future. Mm-hmm. I do believe that the millennials coming up that I see, they don't see socialism or anything related to it per se as, as some scary weaponized thing that we have to avoid at all costs. Exactly. 
Um, I which think, is why it's being re-weaponized. Which is why it's being... I agree with you. So we, we must fight and push back against the re-weaponization of this word. And I was really happy during Bernie Sanders' campaign for him to be using the term social democracy very freely. He mm-hmm. wasn't afraid of that. So it was a change of when FDR wanted to institute some of the... Because if you look at the differences or the similarities between mm-hmm. Bernie and FDR, they're, you know a lot of the policies they support are the same. Mm-hmm. The New Deal, you know, it's like uh, Bernie was pushing for a new New Deal, so to speak. Right. And But he was not saying that these are liberal ideas. He's saying, no, these are social, socialist, social democracy ideas. And um, so uh, to me, this, this tells me that we've come to a certain place in our national dialogue. Right. Where people are willing to accept that, um, hey, this isn't what we've been told it's been our whole life. Every other rich nation has Medicare. Uh, no, not just Me- Medicare for all is like an 80-20 plan. They right. have something better. Most of them right. have a single payer or a, some form of universal coverage. Yeah, free universal health care. Right. So in, in my motherland in Sweden, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people are trying to tell me that that's not a single payer system, but it absolutely is. The government funds all of the local, you know, there's, we can, we can digress into how they have the system right. set up, but it is 100%. Right. Single payer, universal for everybody. So, so I do want to. I do want to just finish uh, what I, what we were talking about with social democracy versus okay. versus anarcho socialism. Okay. Uh, the big thing with anarcho socialism is that people. It's not that we run around completely ungoverned. And there's no fire department, and you know we just <laughs> everybody just is all every every person for themselves, right? That's very Hobbesian, you, right? What it is uh, is much more of an emphasis on direct democracy on everyone having an equal say in how things are governed. And at that point, the question becomes, which I don't have a good answer to, how wide of a net does that direct democracy cast? So I have absolute trust that if we had, we had individual Americans voting on the content of our K through 12 education, that we would get to a very good spot if it were distributed across the entire country. I think we would get to a we would get to a good spot. I think the creationists would lose, the race scientists would lose, the neo confederates okay. would lose. They would all lose, and they might be pissed. That about might be it. true. But but I see your point. I, I think you know we're learning as the internet grows and grows that crowdsourcing turns out to be a, a fairly good way to get to a right decision. And the question is that we haven't solved empirically because it has been tried, is how wide of a net can you cast? I mean, we've already seen where, uh, where crowdsourcing within a corporation, in other words, democratizing the corporation, have all the workers have an equal say in what happens, works better. Those businesses do better. They become more profitable. Mm-hmm. The people inside do much better, more employee retention, every metric you want to apply to it. Um, how how wide do we want to go? Do you want to run a state that way? Do we want to run California well, this way? Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, so when you say a, a broader direct democracy, I understand that you're you're obviously talking beyond the representative representative democracy that we have in the United States exactly. currently. Yes. But let me ask you this: Are you are you saying it's even more so than a parliamentary system like what they have. Well, it's it's still, I mean, the parliamentary system is a different form of representative democracy, as we see in, in Britain, and as we see in the U.S., they're neither representative nor democratic. <laughs> um, what you do is you well, take a bunch of no-talent sociopaths who couldn't get a job anywhere to save their lives, and you put all of them in one city where the vulture capitalists can get them. 
And because it's easy to 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 bribe 430 some members of Congress, it's really hard to bribe 300 million people. Yeah. And you know how you bribe? I think that's fair. You know how you quote unquote bribe 300 million people by doing what's best for the population. So, at what level does the government come into place then? So, we're, do we do away with the Congress and you end up with just an executive branch? Then who who checks the executive branch? So, this is something that. Um, is is becoming possible with the technology we have, and we do it um, in 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 ways we don't think about, like like running our finances uh, over network computers and being able to access from any ATM what what we're doing. That possibility exists. She's you're giving me a face. I'm is giving that... you a face because I, the idea of voting online scares the shit out of me. Yes, and this is this is something... and, and I know because you're a tech guy, you know why. <laughs> yeah, and and we keep. And, and we keep, uh, I'll go into it very, very short. There are things emerging. If you want to look up what blockchaining is, it's how Bitcoin runs its security. Right. Um, but that you have are, to have this enormous key number that you can never uh, lose. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into that. Okay. Let's just, let's just say, as for argument, okay. that we have a very good way to protect the security of the system. Okay. Okay. Let's right. just say. So that's just an, an assumption argument. we're yeah, granting. Let's make it's an a assumption, given. and then right. we can talk about why that is later. Okay. In some other show, but let's say <laughs> we have a very good way to do the security of the system. Uh, why do I need at that point a representative to cast a vote for me? Mm-hmm. I mean, even with our favorite politician Bernie Sanders. What I see is people going online and saying, you know, well, Bernie Sanders hasn't come out and said he wants to abolish ICE, right? And everybody's saying, oh, I'm sure Bernie's going to abolish ICE. I'm sure he is because that's just the kind of guy he is. And I would say the odds are that he, he would probably look into that. But we don't know. Just like we didn't know with Barack Obama what kind of, you know, center-right president he was going to turn out to be. We're dependent on people who at this point I think their biggest talent is lying to the public. Mm-hmm. So nobody's going to cry if Louis Gohmert loses his job. <laughs> nobody's going to cry if Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi oh, lose their no. job, except for her staffers and consultants. <laughs> and, and her corporate owners. And her corporate owners. I mean, but no one can credibly call any of these people our representatives. No one can credibly call any of the clowns in Sacramento who are blocking net neutrality and who are blocking single payer in California representatives of the people. They are there to line their own pockets and to line the pockets of their cronies. Mm-hmm. And that's just not a saying. This is actually what Oh, I don't disagree. I think you're right. Um, I guess my question, though, is at... What level does that stop? So we get rid of Congress, we get get rid of state senates. What do we have? Just governors and an executive branch in the federal level, like right. So, so I these mean, these things. It's not like a lot of these things have been. And then he's not allowed to make decisions on in regards to major things. They have to be cast to a vote each. So if the so when he's creating policies, yeah. say per se, the executive branches, yeah. he can't just make a decision without conferring. So instead of conferring with Congress, he's conferring with the actual voting population of the United right. States. Well, you can hire. Is am I understanding this correctly? One one way to do it would we would be like to, war powers, for example. Instead of getting approval by Congress, he yeah. has to put the vote. How many times would we have gone to war if you had to? Put now, the what vote about appointments to regulators and things like this? 
Yeah, so we're getting into areas that are, that are a little, little bit fuzzier, and I may say things that someone listening will think of an immediate reason why it will never work. But one of the th- one of the things you can well, do. Well, gosh, I may do that. <laughs> one of the things you can do is just strip. Let's say it's just strip off the top level of okay. the federal government. Okay. President goes away, Congress goes away, and we ourselves appoint the cabinet members. And if that's a formidable task. That is a formidable task, but it's if you do a couple other things. Okay, right? so let me ask you another yeah. question. What do you do about folks that aren't well-informed? I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull Plato out again. His, yeah. his argument was that the society is unjust. This mm-hmm. is why we have philosopher kings. The society uh-huh. is unjust if an uninformed, unintelligent voter is allowed to vote mm-hmm. on things that affect the entire society. Yes. So... What do we do about that? I'm not saying we should go all Plato because then you get into this argument about like, well, who gets to decide who's educated, which is can yeah. turn into fascism really quickly. Right. But right. but his point, I think, is a valid one. I think it's a valid one for for people like you and me who tend to think that the majority of people are dumber than we are. <laughs> but ultimately, I think people will get to a good spot. Now, That's this a tad is, Dunning-Kruger, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's, I think it's the opposite of Dunning-Kruger. All right. Um, but I, I think that we're just seeing uh, the emergence of this concept of crowd, crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. And I do think that people, when faced with a more direct connection between their, their vote or their preference, because I think voting in and of itself is problematic. We need a, a, a more forgiving system than that. Uh, and But th- that's another story. But let's say we have a place where you could accurately represent the desires of of our society, mm-hmm. uh, of the individual desires, and, and you could aggregate them in such a way that it expressed a, a meaningful intent. Mm-hmm. At that point, voting against your own self-interest becomes a much harder thing to do. Mm-hmm. Okay? What we're seeing is people vote against their self-interest. Why do they vote against their self-interest? Maybe they haven't paid attention. Oh, most to, of the time they think that's true. To what the idiots are saying. So if, if, if you're worried about people voting against their self-interest, one of the greatest things to do... I'm actually more worried about people not voting at all. Okay. We have a lot of voter apathy in the country. No, we don't. You don't I disagree. Think so? I think we have people who are who are emphatically deciding the system is not working for them and there is no point I'm in including that in my voter apathy yes. definition. I think, but I don't think it's apathy. I think it's people understanding the system. I think you could make an argument they understand the system better than us schmucks who go vote every time. <laughs> because we know from the Princeton study, yeah, we, we, I got our you. votes have no effect. I got you. So the best way to get people to vote against their self-interest is to put a couple layers of indirection in that process. Hmm. Okay. Have you vote for a politician who lies to you, but maybe you haven't been paying attention enough to know that that they're lying? Uh, have them go th- go to a, a Congress that has a bunch of other people who lied their way into office, and then have okay. them have to work out with the influence of money and lobbyists and all of the stuff that comes in concentrate with concentrated power, mm-hmm. um, some sort of law that is then implemented by some other group of clowns. Right. So this is, this is a good way to have people vote against their interests because it's almost impossible to know when you're not. 
Okay, so, so let me ask he, you, let me pose a question to you. Yeah. Do you think Karl Marx is right when he argues that society is composed of, of competing classes with, I'm putting emphasis on competing? And do you think that solves this? I think he's half right. Okay. Okay. I think we're composed of one class which is competing and one class that is oh, basically no. just... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, you're, you're, you're... I think the people who really like the competition and advocate for the competition are the people who were born already having won the competition. Right, I don't disagree. Okay. Um, I... I don't think that we see uh, workers, especially in, in this country, as competing with each other mm-hmm. for resources. This is the richest country in the history of the world. We're not competing with each other for resources. Uh, and I would say we're not really competing with the elites for resources. The, re- the elites are just taking our shit, and we're not doing much about it. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. And the myth that's always been put forward is, you know, what do you hear? The the Mexicans are coming in. The immigrants are coming in to take mm-hmm, our jobs. Mm-hmm. The, the the black people are going to take our jobs if we have affirmative action. But, but this is intentional. They know if they take the heat off of mm-hmm. the class argument and they put it on the race argument, they're more apt to win the day. I think this is an intentional thing. That oh, yeah, I'll say it even more strongly is the way that they are taking the heat off of the class argument is by explicitly invoking the race argument. And it's not just the maggot chuds. No, it's, it's not just, it's the neoliberals, in, in the fact, Clintonites yes, love the to Clintonites, do this. They love look to do at this, how yeah. they racialized the primary. Oh, God, yeah. When you had a guy who was a civil rights, a civil rights activist, mm-hmm. and you had a woman who was a Goldwater girl, yeah, and, they, and they decided they're going to racialize <laughs> the primaries. Yeah. This is how dependent they are on pitting one member of the working class against another member of the working you know, class. But the dumbest thing, and I, and, I, and I have to say dumbest, because this mm-hmm. is so damn stupid, the dumbest thing about people that bought into this argument to me mm-hmm. was they always used the terminology white working class. And I hear this, and I kind of I go, like, what did you just say? Well, yeah. do, I mean, do you really believe that the people most affected in this country by income inequality are white males? Are you kidding me? I think the people most... Imp- I mean, it's just, this is superficially, prima Mm -hmm. facie, this is just a stupid fucking statement. Well, the white working class, um, I think, was really thrust into public consciousness by the 2008 primary, where Hillary explicitly said she was the candidate of the white working class. I mean, she basically ran... Well, on top of it. She ran a white nationalist campaign against Obama. Oh, yeah, she she totally, absolutely she Um, did. I mean, we can, can, you know, look at people like Harriet Christian going on about how... Obama was an inadequate black male. She never said anything to shut that down. (laughs) Oh my God, Harriet Christian. She's my hero. New York City, Hillary State, the best nominee that's possible. And the Democrats are throwing the election away. For what? An inadequate black male? I always knew he wasn't white. I mean, it's so obvious, right? He's he's like more black than Nina Turner or Dr. Cornell West is. I mean, we should just revoke their black cards now. 
I mean, I know I'm a white privileged lady, but I know when a brother has gone off the fucking range. I mean, who conflates black oppression with capitalism? <laughs> so. <laughs> I love Queen Pumala. Oh, she... She's my girl, literally. She does have good taste in wine. <laughs> she has great taste in wine. And dogs. Yeah. Uh, anyway. But, but the... Th- the, the thing that they're trying to do is they, the, the, the thing that scares them the most mm-hmm. is is the working class uniting, right? Yeah. And you saw that in the Occupy movement. Absolutely. When did they start it's cracking the heads? They were pointing and saying, oh, take a shower, get a job, and laughing at right, us right. in the Occupy movement until the people in the Tea Party started saying, you know, they kind of have a point. And people in the Tea Party and people in the Occupy movement started talking about the areas the economic areas they agree on. Of course, yeah. we're going to have fistfights over abortion and gay marriage and all that stuff. But on economic issues, yeah, we're all, as Jesse Jackson said, we're all in the same boat now. I, okay, so I will agree with that, but I'm going to give a little pushback. I don't know that they have the same solutions as the problem. And I think it's it's the, it's a, if the fault of the left to not give a left exit to the income inequality that we have in this country. If sure. we only listen to... So the Tea Party, the Brexit folk, because uh-huh. I don't think this is an isolated thing in the United mm-hmm, States, mm-hmm. they might be able to pinpoint the problem, income inequality. Sure. And we, we're all doing that. Mm-hmm. But the solutions that they provide, which are winning the day now, and the only reason they're winning the day is because the left has failed to give an exit to the problem. They've ignored the problem. They ran another neoliberal mm-hmm. candidate that was on the side of the banksters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, destroyed Bernie in every way, shape, or form that they could. Uh, Corburn, too. I mean, it's not just here in the United States again. It's the fault of the left for not providing what I'm calling a left exit. And the obvious left exit, I'm going to bring this back around to our initial conversation, is is a form of social democracy. Yeah, I think um, I'm I'm less harsh on... um, I'm so harsh. You're harsh on... You're harsh on... (laughs) I'm less harsh on on the left than than you are about this uh, because I think that uh, for for a variety of, of reasons the left has been incredibly demonized in in every form of social interaction we have they've been demonized in government they've been demonized in private industry they've been demonized in the media you don't but don't you don't think that they own some 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 accountability for that demonization? Because every time I turn around, they're handing the media a damn football to to blow them up with. In what sense? Like who? We do. I mean, okay, so we're demonized because we push for a candidate like Hillary Clinton. But Why? Okay, so there was no way are, that that was going to end. You and I are well. talking different definitions of the left. Oh, so you're you're not saying the Democratic Party, the left? You're talking strictly about leftists. I, I, I'm talking like, about like leftists. you and I. Yeah, yeah. There's okay, no so, one who no one who pushes for Hillary on, Clinton right, to incredibly be a leftist. No, I agree. But when you were saying the left is demonized, I thought you meant that the Democrat Party, the left, the broader left, right. as far as this this binary definition in the uh-huh. country. So you're specifically saying you're talking about. The left meaning people like you and I, so we get people demonized. who would not be Democrats, right? So we get de- we get demonized by the Democrats and the Republicans. And the very effective thing that has okay. been done, the, then I the, agree with yeah, you. And I so, was not and, understanding you. Yeah, correctly. and the Bill O'Reilly effect has been to demonize these weak dicked centrists. Oh yeah, and I love that they the call left. them the far left. Yeah, I'm like there is as no far, far left in this country. As Hillary like, Clinton is a far Christ. left loon. She's okay. not even a leftist. I agree She's with like, one third I mean, of that. Yeah. <laughs> 
that guess which part. <laughs> yes. Um, but but there's nothing left, especially not far left, about about her policies. Uh, and p- as part of the thing that's so damaging is letting both the right wing and the centrists get away with calling the center of this country the left. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a problem. It's a huge problem. Yeah, and I, I think when you start separating, you know, the team-based politics yeah. and even the left-right divide and you yeah. start talking about it in in more up-and-down terms, mm-hmm. you find a lot of agreement between Democrats and Republicans who work for a living. Oh, absolutely. None of those people wanted to see money going to the banks. Almost all of them, and it's a very tiny minority, like the same people who thought Dick Cheney was doing a good job. Besides them, most of the country thinks the that we should have single payer. Most of the country thinks we should cut the military budget. Most of the country yeah, thinks think, we should have free college. Yeah, I think the latest polling on uh, Medicare for All looks pretty good. Uh, it's it's yeah, a majority it's about fifty percent of registered Republicans are on board now. So. Yeah, just a bare that's, majority of Republicans that's supports a big, that's a big shift. support single payer. It's a big shift. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's unfortunate that it took people having to file bankruptcy, having unpaid because uh, they can't pay their bills. No, it took people having to die. Well, that was going to be my yeah. next. I wasn't done with my list yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it's tragic that it took these sorts of things happening for people to truly understand why profiteering in our health industry is Well, the thing that's is, tragic so is for us to really get there, it's going to take more of it. You think? I have hope. I... I have hope and then and then I mean, lack help, of hope. John, if this isn't rock bottom, what the fuck does rock bottom look like? Remember Seriously. when they said that? Remember when we said that in 2003? I wasn't sure that we had hit rock bottom in 2003, to be fair. And now, you know, look, you see these people that are, are Hillary Clinton supporters being apologetic towards George Bush at this point. And honestly, I'm going to say this right now. I don't think Trump is worse than George Bush as a president. Mm-hmm. I think people making this argument forgot how devastating... Bush was. Yeah. But I'll back back off on the Hillary supporters because you and I are both active on Twitter. The Hillary supporters we see there, the, the bitter, broken wine moms from Twitter, are not the vast majority of people who voted for Hillary. Oh, Even I people agree. who voted I for agree. Hillary in the primary. I agree. I have friends that voted for Hillary that are now would, saying to me, God yeah. damn it, why didn't I vote for Bernie? I didn't think he could win. I'm an idiot. Like, so yeah. There's, and most of those people there's voted some for Hillary go, in the co- primary. There's some culpa happening. Yeah. If Bernie had been allowed to win, they would have voted for him in a heartbeat. The Bernie haters are a tiny minority mm-hmm. of Democrats and even of Hillary supporters. Oh, I agree. And there are so people who think Hillary's but great. They're so bloody vocal. Yeah. And the problem is, is they control too much of the uh-huh. leadership. They are so infiltrated. Her lobbyists, and they are lobbyists. Most right. Of them, so they're are so deep. In so the I'm going to make a separation between the people in the in the Democratic leadership who all have gigantic financial incentives. That's right. To to push. Uh, horrific warmongering neolibs on the country Mm -hmm. and then the people who are you know merely quote unquote the voters uh, the people who are in the in the voting class who are not political activists yes i think uh, there's a tiny minority of those who are fanatical hillary supporters i agree 200 percent. and i think more i think from my experience at least the more these voters hear Mm-hmm. of what's going on and that these folks are lobbyists mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera, the more appalled they become. I mean, the, the, we've seen a massive increase of registrations that are no party affiliation Yeah, in the country. And I'm, um, 
and I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say most of the folks that are registered independent in the United States are left-leaning. I don't think they have a home anymore. Yeah, I mean, almost almost by definition, unless they're members of some, like, John Birch Society or something, um, <laughs> People who are abandoning Kano. people who are abandoning the two-party system yeah. are doing a progressive act by abandoning the two-party system. They may not fully be in the camp of progressives, but that is a, a forward-looking. We know we have to get rid of these parties at some point if we're going to be successful. So a lot of people are, are moving in that direction. He said, "I agree." Ah, okay. <laughs> 